Proverbs chapter 3, Proverbs 3, starting at verse 28, it's page 529 if you're using that blue Bible. Proverbs 3, we'll start at verse 28. As you may know, as if you were in, the, in my class this morning, you know this, uh, the Old Testament was written, written in Hebrew at around 300 B.C., it was one of the earliest books to get translated into another language. And so it got translated into Greek. We call that particular version the Septuagint. And so that was in 300 BC. Well, verse 34, translated from Hebrew to Greek, shows up in our reading. We're going to read in James. And it shows up in our reading that you heard before the confession of sin in 1 Peter 5. But all of it is worth listening to. So hear the word of the Lord. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again, tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. For the devious person is an abomination to Yahweh, to the Lord. But the upright are in his confidence. Yahweh's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. And you hear that translated over in James 4 and 5. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Toward the scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. And so now we turn to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, it's page 1012 in that blue Bible. So we continue our series in James, hand and heart. James 4, 1 through 10, burbles out of or gushes out of chapter 3. So I know everybody remembers everything I said last week on chapter 3. But if you remember a few things, just remember it still connects here. It's coming, chapter 4, 1 through 10, is coming out of chapter 3. So here we go, chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity, hostility with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. He will exalt you. What I've read to you from the Old Testament and the New Testament is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, who has given us the wisdom from above that is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, 
full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, so that a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Help us to hear your servant James, who is speaking your words. Help us to hear your servant James and take to heart his instructions that we may move away from quarreling and condemning to resisting and reforming. Amen. You may be seated. So for those of you visiting and don't know, on the back of the worship guide are the sermon notes there. There's like 110 points. No, there's only two. There's only two points there. And then there's questions at the end for you to discuss later today when you're sitting around lunch. I'm sure a couple of your care groups next week may bring up some of those questions as well. So they had been married for a few years, but had been fighting like cats and dogs for quite some time. Their Eastern Orthodox priest, a dear friend of mine, was at his wit's end. So he called me and he asked me if I would meet with them. They're not listening to me, Mike. Maybe they'll listen to you. That was his whole thing. And so I did. I met with them. I met with them for about six weeks over a three-month period. And almost from the first minute, you could hear it. They all, they all, they each had all the right, I'm putting quotation marks around the word right, they all, they each had the right reasons for being angry at their spouse, and they could rehearse each other's faults with surgical precision while declaring their own rightness. Well, I took them through this passage, James chapter 4. I took them through this passage that we're looking at this morning and got them to go beneath their own rightness to their passions and desires. They acted as if they'd never heard this verse, these verses before or, or acted and acted as if they'd never realized the Bible actually spoke to their situation. I did get a chance also to lay out the gospel more than once. Well, I will tell you, it was a beautiful set of meetings as time unfolded. And I'm happy to say that their uh, Eastern Orthodox priest, a friend of mine, when I spoke to him the last time about them a few years back, he said they were still together and doing quite well. Praise the Lord. Now, if you ever come to me to do a wedding, right? You want me to marry you? I mean, most of you have already married. But, but if you ever come to me do, to do a wedding, and you want, I have to do a pre-marriage classes. And so we will inevitably, I'm just telling you now, we will inevitably come to James 4. And if you're having marital conflict and you're coming to me for marriage counseling, we will inevitably come to James 4. And I'm telling you that to tell you that this is a very uh, applicable passage for every one of us in our relationships, though James actually has one thing in mind as he's going through this. And so I wanted to emphasize the value of this passage and to show that this has everything to do with our relationships as we live as we put off quarreling and condemning and we put on resisting and reforming. So quarreling and condemning, verses 1 through 5. I hope you have your Bibles open, by the way, because you're going to need to be able to see what I'm talking about. So James chapter 4. Notice the location of these quarrels and these fights, these conflicts, this combating and condemning. Notice the location. It's there in verse 1. He says, where... Uh, what causes quarrels and fights, and what causes fights among you, second person plural, among you as fellowships? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you, second person plural? 
He's not talking about internal struggles. He's talking about their fellowship. Here's where it comes from. It comes from your warring passions amongst one another and how that brings out these fights. So he's talking about inside of these, this relationship of fellowships. He's not talking about our own personal existential angst. So James has seen these tussles inside the scattered bands of believers, the 12 tribes and the dispersion, as he calls them in chapter 1, verse 1. And notice that drawing from chapter 3, what James says here in verse 1 and 2, for example, has everything to do with teachers. Remember chapter 3, verse 1. Do not let many of you become teachers, brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with stricter, uh, greater strictness. For everyone stumbles in every way, but if you don't stumble in what you say, wonderful, hallelujah, glory to God, and all that, and then everything else he says primarily focuses on the teachers. It's true for all of us, how much more so regarding teachers. So that's just in his mind as he comes to chapter 4. Teachers who are working from the wisdom that is not from above, chapter 3.15. Teachers who exhibit bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, bragging and false to the truth. Teachers who are... bring about wisdom and present wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual, demonic, accompanied by disorder and every vile practice, chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. But he's also dealing with the believers who are in these synagogues who are following their leadership, who are following their leadership in a downward decline that increases with hotter and hotter intensity. And you know that because you'll notice here in verses 1 and 2, he's talking about passions and desires. And in James, the last time James really talked about desire was back in chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. These two sets of verses are connected. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. And he does not tempt anyone. But each person is, a, is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own, what? Desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. The reason why I bring this up is what James is worried about and concerned about is when desires and passions get the dominance in our lives. It causes us to be vulnerable to temptation, and it destroys relationships, creating all kinds of uh, inflammatory explosions in relationships. That's why James is very concerned here. Now, what is important to see is not that these folks have passions and desires, but it's that these passions and desires have defeated and dominated them. Ed Welch wrote a great book. You see how big it is? It's a teeny book, and that's what it says, a small book about a big problem. The whole little book is about anger. I highly recommend it, by the way. It's about anger. And Ed Welch says this. Quote, desires are not always wrong. We all desire love, respect, adequate money to take care of our families. The problem is that our desires become our rights. Our desires become our rights, or so we believe. And our desires morph into idols that we live for and that control us. Our desires become our rights and they morph into our idols that we live for and control us. That's what James is most worried about here. 
you see, passion and desire often do energize good things in us, like love, work, being good workers, having a good work ethic, right? Most of all, it energizes in us a desire to draw near to God, so worship, discipleship, and so on. So passion and desires can also can energize good things in us, but when passion and desire no longer motivate us, but master us. When passion and desire no longer motivates us, but masters us, then we are in a heap of trouble, as we say it here in Oklahoma. We're in a heap of trouble. As bad as this is individually, and it is bad individually, what happens when you put two people together who are mastered by their passions and desires, or three or four? Or you put together 20 people or 100 people all being mastered and dominated by their passions and desires. What's the end result there? Well, James tells you in verse 1 and 2, war, cage fights, mayhem. Ruled by our desires and our passions we're, where our wants and desires have become musts and ought where our wants and desires have become musts and oughts that we're entitled to and we have a right to. It's a bad place to be because it turns our marriages and our friendships and our congregations into battle zones and nuclear wastelands. Therefore, this quarreling and condemning affects our relationships with one another, but not only with one another. James goes on to say it impacts our relationship with God. Notice how he goes on to put it. You desire and do not have, so you murder. I'm sure that's very metaphorical, probably slicing people up with your tongue. You murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your what? Your passions. To spend it on your passions. Notice what James is telling us. We, when we're dominated by our passions, passions and desires, we can't pray. Or when we do pray, it's all wrong and rotten. Why? Because... Think of it, when you ask in prayer in Jesus' name, what does that mean? It means you ask under the authority of Jesus. When you pray in Jesus' name, it means you ask in submission to Jesus. But when passions and desires come and master us, they impact our relationship with God because it all reveals the true God we actually are worshiping. It reveals our central idol. It turns prayer in that should be a submissive, worshipful event. It turns prayer into becoming self-centered bossiness. And it exposes the kind of God I want. I hope you're listening. It exposes the kind of God I want. And what kind of a God do I really want? Well, let's be honest. A God who inverts the Westminster Shorter Catechism, number one, on its head. A God who glorifies me and enjoys me forever. That's the kind of God I want when passions and desires have got me. 
And this truth is why James then goes on to where he goes. Look at verse 4. What does he do? The very first words out of his mouth, so to speak, in verse 4 are, you adulterous people. Why would he say that? Because James is drenched with the Old Testament, which is wonderful. And in the Old Testament, all the way through the Old Testament, what does God often picture his people as when they go chasing down other gods? What does he often call them? Adulterers. You're, loving, you're looking for love in all the wrong places. You're looking away for love away from God to other sources. You're adulterous. In fact, just go read Hosea. Go spend, Anna and I are, are in our family evening devotions are working through Hosea. Just go read Hosea. Hosea, go marry Gomer. And then Gomer just can't stay at home and she's running around, fooling around. And, and what does God say? That's what it's like being the God of my people. They're fooling around all the time. It's heartbreaking. That's why James says what he says. If you're going to be ruled and dominated by your passions, which means you want a different God than the one who has saved you, then you're an adulterous people. That's why he says what he says. In fact, he continues this theme. Notice how he goes on to put it. He starts summarizing a whole load of Old Testament passages passages in verse 4 and verse 5 when he says you adulterous people do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God but if you want to be a friend of the world you are God's enemy now in the context of chapter 4 what does it mean to be a friend of the world oh it means being ruled and dominated and mastered by my passions and desires oh that's what the world does I hope you're listening. That's what the world does. And when we're mastered and dominated by our passions and desires, we're worldly. Friendship with the world, which then puts us at enmity with God. And then he moves on in that verse 5. He's just, just pulling together a whole bunch of Old Testament passages talking basically about the love and desire that God has for his people. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy, jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? It all makes sense. Well, my friends, this is the quarreling and condemning, and I want you to realize that James is not into beatdown mode in verses 1 through 5. James is not into beatdown mode. He is in catch-up mode and bring-up mode for his readers So they will move away and want to move away from the quarreling and condemning and move toward resisting and reforming. That's where he wants them to be because he loves them. He cares about them. And so now we're at verses 6 through 10, resisting and reforming. Notice that James launches into resistance and reformation by quoting the Greek translated version of, of Proverbs 3 verse 34 that I mentioned earlier. Notice how he begins, but he gives more grace. Now just stop there. That's a sentence. That's how you know James is not in beatdown mode. If he was in beatdown mode, he'd have said, and I hope you just slither around in the misery of your situation, blah, blah. But he doesn't. He takes us to the gospel, but he gives more grace. And then he goes on. Here he starts quoting. He gives more grace. Therefore it says, Scripture says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God stands in opposition to the proud 
gives grace to the humble. And Peter says the same thing. We read it before the confession of sin from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 9. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. But now in James 4, you have to ask the question, who are the proud James has in mind that God is opposing? Who are the proud that James has in mind that God is opposing? We just have to go back to chapter 3 and the first part of chapter 4. It's the leaders and the led, the teachers and the taught, the pastors and the parishioners who are exhibiting the wisdom that is not from above with all of its bitter jealousy, accompanied by discord and every vile passion or affection. Practice, that's what it is, practice. Every vile practice. It's the, it's the teachers and the taught, the leaders and the led of verses 1 through 5 that want their passions and their desires and their wants to become everybody else's musts and ought. Those are the proud James actually has in mind that God is opposing. Well then, who are the humble who are being boosted and bolstered by God's goodness? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Well, it's the pastors and the people, the teachers and the taught, the leaders and the led of chapter 3, 17 and 18 who are walking with Jesus in the way of Jesus. The way that is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Where a harvest of righteousness is being sown in peace by those who make peace. That's the humble. How do I know that? Because what I said last Sunday. That's our Lord Jesus. Philippians chapter 2. Who being in the very form of God did not consider it a robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself by taking upon himself the form of a servant. He humbled himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross. The gospel is the very heart of James. So those humble find themselves they're humble because they've embraced our humble lord jesus so god opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble my friends this is where james wants these christians to be it's where they should want to be and it's where we ought to be and should want to be as well and so to that end he tells them eight things he tells them eight things. These, there are actually eight directives. If you want to say co the command word, that's great, because that's exactly what they are. There are eight commands. There are eight directives. And these eight directives can be summarized by the phrase resisting and reforming. Three of them have really wonderful promises. Three of them have really wonderful promises. The first one is submit to God. Do you see it there in verse 7? Submit to God. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, submit to God. Now, I love that that's the very first one because submission to God is a substantial part of saving faith. You go back to chapter 2, verse 19, that Pastor West was talking about two weeks ago, and you notice, oh, the devils have faith. Yes, the devil himself has faith, the demons have faith. Well, what does that mean? That means they know the facts about God, they know the facts about Jesus, they believe those facts are true, but there's one thing that they didn't do and they're not ever going to do. Submit to Jesus. 
That's saving faith. You know the facts, you believe the facts are true, and you embrace Jesus Christ as he's freely offered in the gospel. You submit to him. Notice that that's where James begins. Submit to God. This is the willing, glad surrender to God's kingship rather than your passions and desires being your king, where you're actually willingly surrendering to God's kingship. The second thing he directs, resist the devil and he will flee from you. I love the way that's put. It's kind of Paul's put on, put off, right? Submit to God, which means you must then do what's the next thing. You've got to do it. It just makes sense. If you're going to submit to God, you've got to do what? Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Great news. Resist the devil. I like the way St. Benedict put this in about the 6th century when he said, when evil thoughts come into one's heart, dash them against Christ immediately. When evil thoughts come into one's heart, dash them against Christ immediately. That's the concept. Submit to God, resist the devil. And notice that there is a promise with that one, and he will flee from you. He it doesn't say he might flee from you. He could flee from you. He should flee from you. What does it say? He what? Will. He will flee from you. There's a promise there. As you submit to God, he will flee from you. Now just take some time here. The promise is that the chief slanderer, that's what the name devil means. He is the chief slanderer. Jesus tells us that in John 8, verse 44, by the way. But that the, the promise is that the chief slanderer will be forced to flee. Submit to God, resist the devil, he will flee from you. My friends, that should encourage every one of us. For those of you who want to get dated here with Flip Wilson, it wasn't the devil that made me do it, right? The evil one is not all-powerful, my friends. He's actually pretty lame. He's really only a cheerleader. That's all he really does. He's cheering us on into sin. Sin, by the way, that I want to do. Go back to James 1, verse 13 to 14, 15. He's only cheering us on. Come on, you know you really want to do that. It's okay. Look, you're smart. It won't, it won't impact you. It won't damage you at all. Look, it's only about you. Who cares about society? This is, we're a highly rugged individualist society. Go for it. You can do it. Right? Who's cheering us on? The evil one. Come on, you really, you know you're brilliant. So go ahead and fire off that really, really hostile email. It's okay because you're brilliant. You have a right to do it because you're so stinking smart. Who's telling you that? Well, your own heart is. And the devil says, amen, brother, preach it. He's your cheerleader into sin. He's pretty lame, actually. He is not the one that makes us arrogant. And he is not the one that makes us impish. We do that by allowing our passions and desires to rule us. So submit to God, resist the devil, he will flee from you. The next one is what? The next one is draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Did you hear the promise? Is there a should there? Is there a might there? Is there a could there? Draw near to God and what? He will. He will draw near to you. 
That's great news. That's exciting news. That promise should set a fire under every one of us. It should change our gait from sluggish shuffling along to running full steam ahead. Well, pastor, I just don't feel very near to God. Well, have you drawn near to Him? Or maybe the next question is, have you drawn near to God or have you only drawn near to your wants and desires? Right? Have you drawn near to God and you draw near to Him? He will draw near to you. Then James goes on and he gets into this laundry basket, if you will. He gets into this pile of directives. It's all that gloomy stuff that turns people off. Cleanse and purify, be wretched and mourn, and so forth. He's got it all listed there in verses 8 and 9. Now I want you to realize that pile of directives goes closer together, and there's a great intention to what James is after here. And I hope you're listening. He wants God's people to not fear the consequences of their sins, but to detest their sins. Do you hear the difference? He wants God's people not to fear the consequences of their sins, but to detest their sins. Let me tell you two stories. One would depress you if I left you with this one, but two stories. There was a fellow who was committing adultery. Both of these have to do with adultery, sorry, but this worked really well in my head. One fellow was committing adultery and he got caught by his wife. So I'm sitting there with him and he's boo-hooing and crying big old dinosaur tears. I mean, we're beyond crocodile. These are dinosaur tears, right? And he begs her and implores her to forgive him. And she says, okay. And then he comes back to me about a week or two later and he's like, well, she didn't forgive me. And the first question I asked him is I said, well, was that girl's phone number still on your phone? Let me see your phone. No. What's that got to do with anything? He, he, wasn't, he wasn't worried about the sin. That didn't matter to him. It was the consequences. He wanted the status quo. Do you, are you picking up what I'm putting down? And James wants us to move from that to where we actually detest the sin. And so here's the other story. Young woman, a wife, a married woman, commits adultery. And she just cannot hide it. She just, she's not caught. She didn't get caught. But she finally, her conscience was just bugging her. She tells her husband. And he explodes, of course, rightly so. I would have done the same. And he drives about 10 states away to come see me. While this is going on, we're, his wife and I are talking on the phone. And I'm impressed by the fact that she is recognizing that what she did is a sin. I'm impressed by the fact that she says, what do I do? I don't want to ever do that again. Do you hear the difference already? And so we start talking about it, and she recognizes that what I'm talking about is not so she can get her husband back. It's because it's the right thing to do because this is what God wants us to do because God doesn't want us to do that, and she's all on board. And she does these changes not to get her husband back, but simply to do what's right in the eyes of God. She detested her sin. Are you catching the difference here? James is wanting us to move there, to quit fearing the consequences of our sin, per se, to actually detesting our sin. That's all that cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Actually hate your sin for crying out loud. That's what James is after. 
And that goes well with our Westminster Shorter Catechism. Number 87, if you're writing notes, Westminster Shorter Catechism, 87. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin does with grief and hatred or a true grief of his sin or a, a sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it to God with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. That's what James is after because he cares about these people. And so notice the last directive then. Be humble, and the Lord Jesus will exalt you. Notice what it says. It says there in verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord. Who is the only person in James mentioned as the Lord twice? Chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. Who? Okay. Chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. When he says, Lord, your mind goes to the gospel and it goes to Jesus. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Well, why would you humble yourselves before the Lord? Because the Lord is humble. That's how you got saved to begin with. Humble yourselves before the Lord and the Lord Jesus and He will exalt you. Somebody should be shouting hallelujah, thank the Lord or something. I don't know, but it's like this is great news. So, the next question then to ask is, what is the arena where all of this resisting and reforming is to be worked out? It's the same place where all the quarreling and condemning had been going on. Inside the sacred society. And so, if you were here last week, or if you listened to last week's sermon, as I said last Sunday, in the words of our Book of Church Order's final vow for officers, for elders and deacons, and for me as a pastor... In the words of our BCO, our Book of Church Order's final vow for ordination of elders and deacons, James wants pastors and parishioners, teachers and taught, leaders and led to promote the purity, peace, unity, and edification of the church. And so, whenever you see or find yourself involved in a church spat or a skirmish, Realize that for all of the theological and doctrinal and ethical blustering and brashness being spewed out like 7.62 millimeter rounds, that's for an M60 machine gun, I carried one for years, being spewed out like 7.62 millimeter rounds in full automatic in almost every situation with very few exceptions, in almost every situation with very few exceptions, the underlying struggle comes because of warring desires and clashing passions that have now become rights, have now become entitlements, have now become musts and oughts. I find it enormously instructive that notice that James does not fall into any trap here. He doesn't run around saying, y'all need to get along with these people because they're right. You notice that? He doesn't say any one of them is right. He's saying, y'all got it wrong. 
You're letting your passions and desires rule you in your church fights. He doesn't take sides because he knows that that's just a presenting issue. Whatever the language was they were using, the reality is the fight was actually because war, the, the, the passions and desires had come to dominate both sides. And so James does not get stuck into that trap. Every time in this letter, when he comes to the disagreements and discords within these fellowships, with all of the grandstanding and all of the positioning, where I'm sure more than one group said to the other, we're right and you're not. James, by the inspiration of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit, dives below all of that and he gets down to the real issues underneath. Which means that our task is not to strive for the purity of the church alone, but to strive for the purity, peace, unity, and edification of the church. In every controversy and clash, James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, directs us to do something. First, to step back and submit to God. To become remorseful for our sinful part in the controversy. Are there sinners involved in the controversy? In every controversy. So guess what? Every one of us has sinned. We may sin in response and reaction, but we've still sinned. To become remorseful for our sinful part in the controversy. To come to humble ourselves before the Lord Jesus. To probe our own hearts and to ask ourselves honestly before God. God is this firefight. Because of my passions and desires, my wants and desires and pleasures becoming musts and oughts? Or is it really about principle? And if you are walking in wisdom's way, chapter 3, 17 and 18, which is Jesus' way, for purer than peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, for a harvest of righteousness is being sown in peace by those who make peace. If you're walking in wisdom's way, which is Jesus' way, you will finally find that you have the grace and honesty to answer that question. And my friends, if I haven't ticked somebody off, let me just do the next thing. This is true in your marriages. I don't care how often you say or I say, I'm right, she's wrong. And about 99.8% of the time, it's a clash of passions and desires. I want my way. My way is the right way. And she wants the wrong way. You get what I'm saying? And it becomes this explosive clash. That's why marriages break down almost always. I'm sure Hal does counseling and Bill sometimes. They probably could tell you some stories. That's where the marriages begin to break down. When we start wanting my way, our way, our passions, our desires become rights and musts and oughts. Creates this conflict. Same thing with our kids, our adult kids. Same thing with our adult kids. Very often our conflict with our adult children is because somebody, and it's not always them, it's almost always just as much us, somebody in that relationship wants their desires and passions to become musts and oughts. 
look, I'm smarter than you. I'm 61 years old, y'all. You need to do it my way because I got it figured out. You need to listen to me. They're not listening to me. Obviously, they're of the devil. How did I spawn these children? You, you, you get it? Do you see? This passage is hugely applicable. And so the invitation is right there for all of us. Submit to God. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your heart, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord Jesus, and he will exalt you. So the invitation is there for all of us. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you as people who honestly, and you knew this before we even said anything, are often dominated by our wants and desires, our passions. Probably the spookiest part of it is that we want a God who glorifies us and enjoys us forever. Dear God, please have mercy upon us and forgive us. Forgive us for being and adding fuel to fights within our relationships, whether it's church or marriages or kids, whatever. Thank you that the doors open. Thank you, you've given us such great promises. We submit to you and resist the devil, he will flee from us. Hallelujah. We draw near to you, you will draw near to us. Glory to God in the highest. We humble ourselves before the Lord Jesus. He will exalt us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And so, Lord, as we get ready to come to communion, which is all about our humble Savior, help us to kneel down before you and receive with humble hearts. And then I pray, when we get up and walk out, that you would help us to see our relationships and conflicts more clearly and our part. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.